projector is much more friendly sounding at 18 frames a second. It's more like a cat purring, you know, very content. Where the 24 frames is more like the claw, the, you can feel the claw, you know, and so that it's more pleasant when you're looking at movies in an apartment or say in a room, to, to, it's much more pleasant to the, to the ear that they're going at silent speed than at, at uh, sound speed. That was the sound of a 16mm film projector running at 18 frames per second and the American filmmaker Nathaniel Dorsky discussing one of the reasons why he will only present his work projected at that speed. Our guest on this episode of Into the Mothlight podcast is the American filmmaker Nathaniel Dorsky a prolific and poetic filmmaker who has been making short experimental films since the mid-1960s. His book, Devotional Cinema, is essential reading for anyone interested in the transformative nature of a certain kind of experimental film. In it, he explores the ideas of a concordance between film and our human metabolism. And he talks about devotion as the opening or the interruption that allows us to experience what is hidden and to accept with our hearts our given situation. The best introduction to Nathaniel Dorsky was written by Steve Polta from the San Francisco Cinematheque. This is what Steve said. The films of Nathaniel Dorsky blend a beauteous celebration of the sensual world with a deep sense of introspection and solitude. They are occasions for reflection and meditation on light, landscape, time and emotions of consciousness. The luminous photography emphasises the elemental frisson between solidity and luminosity, between spirit and matter, while his uniquely developed montage permits a fluid and flowing experience of time. Dorsky's films reveal the mystery behind everyday existence, providing imitations of eternity. I listened to Nathaniel Dorsky give an online talk last year where he talked about looking through the camera with a sense of love, an idea that really stayed with me. So my only question in our interview was how this is achieved and how he offers this to his audience. Into the moth light. I think what it is is when I'm looking through the camera and um, I feel that I'm not looking at something other, something outside myself and taking a picture of it. But I think the love has to do with at the moment when the actual, the seer and the scene are in union. In other words, my seeing creates a, a rectangle. You know, the rectangle is a container of my seeing. And that container uh, is somehow magnified by the substance, the subject within, within it. It's a question of bringing the rectangle and the image into union so that the rectangle itself uh, has its own intrinsic beauty and its own intrinsic uh, tenderness. You know, the, the way the rectangle surrounds what you're actually seeing. At the same time, you're very sympathetic uh, to what you're seeing. I think the main, main thing is that there's a, there's a point of union where you're not photographing the world outside yourself. 
but where photographing and the world are the same? That's a very sophisticated question. I don't know if I answered it. You seem to be quite prolific over the pandemic and the lockdown. And I, w- I was yeah. reading about some of the, the works that you've made over this time. And I wondered if we could maybe talk about um, some of your recent films, just to, to get a really in-depth idea of, of your processes. San Francisco and um, you know the, the parklands within seem to be really important to you in, in terms of a, a space that you inhabit and a space that you admire enough um, to spend time in it and photograph. Is that location important for you at the minute and has it been an important place for you over the pandemic when perhaps walking in a garden is, is one of the only things that you can do? The uh, Golden Gate Park, which is a half a block from my apartment, is like a sanctuary. And during the, during the lockdown, you could still, if you're walking alone, you could either take your mask off, you know, don't tell anyone. No, you could take your mask off. I mean, if you're, you know, you're uh, the park is quite big. It goes many miles all the way to the ocean, and um, there's a lot of uh, dirt trails back. There's a lot of backwoods. You know, there's also tennis courts and all that kind of thing. But there's also a lot of just uh, rural, you know, woodsy areas. And so, in a certain way, I could exist outside of COVID in, in that kind of caps, in that little kind of protected capsule of the park. In other words, it was difficult to, to start photographing the world as if nothing was going on. You know, it, it's, it, 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 you couldn't quite make believe that COVID wasn't coming or it was, you know, that this, this threat was coming, you know. And so the park, in a way, gave a little bit of a, a sanctuary for working. And what happened was that I, I would hang out in different places during during the lockdown. They have these wonderful, maybe built in the 19, for America old, <laughs> 1920s or 1910s, uh, these pools, which were made for fishermen to practice fly, fly casting. It's an, almost like an Ozu atmosphere. It has the atmosphere, to me, being a romantic, of an abandoned uh, temple from the past. You know, like that famous, is it uh, uh, Wordsworth, Tintern Abbey? You know. Anyway, the point is, it, it felt to me like an, an ancient Mayan temple that was flooded, you know, from the past. This, you know... And I was, and it was very nice there to, because the water was in these smooth pools, and the water was a kind of a medicinal or or a calming, healing kind of presence. This is when COVID was coming, and we we didn't know how big this wave was going to be, whether we'd all be dead in two months. We didn't know what you know what was going to happen, and I I found the water kind of healing, so then. Out of that, I began to shoot various things to express express the sense of this old ruin that was flooded with water, but the water was full of sunlight and wind, and and kind of purifying. So and so that so there, this film came out called Temple Sleep, which is a reference to um, 
uh, Epidaurus in Greece, which was a healing center, uh, where they would have where they'd have a drug-induced sleep. I don't know if it was uh, mushrooms uh, or what, you know. And then people would report their dreams, and it was called Temple Sleep, you know. So I called the film Temple Sleep, and uh, at one point a, a woman friend, a photographer, came and visited me while I was shooting. Came over from across the bay. And, you know, because there were picnic tables there, so you could eat outdoors. You could meet with people and still be within the, the rules, you know, of COVID and so forth. And uh, so she, then she, then I started to photograph her, and the film just developed out of hanging out at, at these pools over a period of a month. And so that's, in a way, how, how that film happened. A number of them after, all, they all happen through circumstance. I'm, I, my imagination is not very good. I, I'm a little bit corny. I'm not a, 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 an imaginative filmmaker in a certain sense, in the sense that I can imagine a, a subject. You know, they usually have to come out of just uh, being someplace for a while and then taking out my camera and seeing without thinking what interests me in shooting. And when I get the first footage back, uh, what, what is inspiring? What, what was exciting, you know? And so the, the, the films, my films grow very much out of circumstance. I know that you, you spent a lot of time um, filming that area for the Arboretum cycle, but it's obviously that you've, you've got such a love and such a passion for that area, and it is so vast that your eye can still um, focus on something that's micro. Yeah. Well, the Arboretum cycle was actually shot in the Arboretum, sorry, uh, in the Arboretum, which is maybe a mile or a couple of kilometers away from where the casting pools are. You know, so when I was making the Arboretum cycle, there had been a drought in, in California for about five years. California exists through a winter rainy season. If it doesn't rain in the winter, then it's dangerous because there's no snow in the mountains and the water becomes very scarce. It had been that way for about five years. And then I, um, I was in the Arboretum and it, and it had rained all of November. All of a sudden, there was a tremendous amount of rain. And the spring, seemed, the whole land was so full of energy because of the pent-up five years of not really being able to grow in a really wonderful way. And um, so what I did, actually, is I did my so-called pre-production. Do they use that expression in England? Yeah, of course we do, yeah. Uh -huh. Yes, so my pre-production involved eating a lot of uh, this brew I made from uh, from uh, hashish, and 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 cooked it in butter and uh, ghee and so forth. And I spent a week in the garden every day, you know, rather transported by this mixture. And uh, I realized that I wanted to make a film that spring in the arboretum because it was so it felt so exciting anyway i went every day for a week you know on this brew in the garden and i realized that i did i wanted to make a film about the light in the garden not the not the plants as such 
I thought to make a film about the plants in a garden, you know, is as a is kind of risky. It's not um, it's not cinematic enough. It's not cinematic enough. It's too dependent on, on on the beauty of something else, the beauty of a flower or something. And I knew that that wouldn't be very. It couldn't go very far in the end. It would become kind of corny to use simple language. I realized I wanted to shoot the light on the plants. In other words, the way each plant, re the way light reacted to the surface of each plant was totally different. And so I began to compose shots, not based on form, but based on light. In other words, the formal quality of the composition was not based on form, but it was based on on light. And so the light became the emphasis. So I would take compositions which didn't uh, turn into language. What I mean is it didn't turn into the word tulip or daffodil, you know, right? I didn't take a shot which could just turn into language. I took a shot which was of, which was of the, which was exercising the light in the situation. And I finished the first film in early spring and it turned out it was quite strong. And then when I was waiting for the for the final print to come back from the lab, I was out in the garden. I said, oh, now it's full spring. That other film was early spring. I'm going to make a, now a small one just about this full spring. And that, that kept repeating itself all the way until the end of December when I made the last of the seven films in that series called Epilogue. And it was that, that was a sense that everything had, had died and returned back into the earth. And so there's a, another example of a film coming naturally out of circumstance, you know. And I think, I think that it's a very good way to work because if I think of the way reality, the, the creation or reality, whatever you want to call the situation we're in, you know, the way it works is there's, there's, so many planets which don't work, so to speak. You know, many planets are tried and then just one works. You know, every once in a while one works. And so it's a little bit in that spirit where something happens by accident that works. And then that leads to something that grows from that. So I, I think that reality works through a series of accidents and then reality determining which accidents are functioning well just because they work in reality. So the filmmaking is a little like that, I find. It's a little bit like being a hunter-gatherer filmmaker rather than an agriculturalist. What I mean is an agricultural filmmaker, you know, buys a property, you know, and then invests uh in, in that property and hopes to recoup their money through their investment in that property. You know, where the hunter-gatherer is a little bit more like I had been describing. There's, there's no pre-subscribed idea about what's going to happen. I did have some questions about how you get into the right kind of headspace to uh, allow you the freedom to, to shoot. And I think you've answered that that question for me, which is really interesting. And the other bit is about hanging out in a space. You hang out somewhere and, and you, you yeah. get to know it. Um, some of the, the stills um, from the Arboretum cycle and uh, works like Ember Days. So you talked about the way that the light 
interacts with, with the plants or, 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 or works with the, the, the moisture on the plants. And I'm also interested in your use of focus. Um, so you say that the point of focus is not in the normal or predictable place. So h- how much thought goes in goes into that? Do, do you spend a short amount of time looking through the viewfinder of your Bolex to, to get the right kind of depth? Or is it something that's quite sp- spontaneous? Well, it's, it's both, of course. But um, I, look, I look through the camera. Well, first of all, I'm walking along. And out of my corner of my eye, so to speak, I see something where the light is in a certain kind of tension, which I feel is translatable onto film. You know, the whole mission of a filmmaker, right, is to take the, the, the openness of the world in front of them and then reproduce it on a, on a screen, on a square screen. So you have to learn as a filmmaker, how do you translate the world onto a screen? You know, and the, and the great, the really great filmmakers, the translation of the world onto the screen is magnificent because the screen becomes a magnificent thing in the world. The screen itself becomes magnificent, you know. So then the question is, as you work over the years as a filmmaker, you more and more understand what's going to play, as they would say, what, what's going to work on the screen and what isn't, you know. I might see something really amazing. I go, no, it's not gonna, it's not gonna translate. It's gonna be because if if it's something that's already beautiful and you just take a picture of it, then in a way you're reducing it. It's a copy of, you know, and it's sort of reductive, right? Where it's where it's um, better to come upon something which isn't in the world maybe particularly noticeable, but through the but through photography. It can become the, the photography itself can become magnificent. So, in terms of the focus, if I see a situation that seems fertile to me, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll look through the camera, and then what I'll do is I'll focus at different points, you know, from very close to far away, and see at what point the the whole thing becomes without gravity. The shot loses its pictorial sense. It becomes more an energy field, more like energy, you know, an energy field rather than a stay, a theatrical stage with a, a floor and gravity at the bottom. You know, I'm not really interested in gravity in my <laughs> in my films. I'm interested in, in turning the screen into some evocation of a certain state of spiritual state. Into the Moth Light. Into the Moth Light Podcast. I want to ask you about polyvalent editing, and I've been fascinated with this idea since I first heard the, the phase, and I've been looking how other artists work with that sort of open form or open montage editing. So these very short cuts, they, they go to the next shot only for its own needs. The association will resonate some several frames down the line. How much, again, are you thinking of, of this and the edit when you point the camera and shoot? And you've already said that, you know, you automatically know what will play and what might not play 
uh, when something catches the, the, the yeah. you know, catches your attention at the corner of your yeah. eye? Well, well, the first time I really tried the polyvalent editing, it was with material that wasn't photographed for that purpose. It was from material from a number of films I had abandoned, you know, studies of certain things or uh, home movie diaries of certain things and things I had never used. So the first time I tried to really do the polyvalent editing, it took me four or five years to edit a, just a 19-minute movie because it took me a while to learn how it worked. Also, the footage wasn't being shot for that purpose, so it made it even a little bit more difficult. Now, you might ask, how can you shoot for that purpose? At a certain point, you just, you know, as a, a, a if you're a filmmaker, as a cameraman, it's, it's a very good to also be in the cutting room because if you see your footage being or the problems an editor has with your footage makes you into a better cameraman. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Yes, of course. In simple, in terms of the film industry, you know, you know how to get better coverage. You know, you know how to how to bring coverage to the bring coverage into the editing room, which is usable. You know, they they have a way to get from this shot to that shot because you you've shot an insert, you know, and all all that kind of thing. So that's just like very typical, uh, a camera person being, you know. Aware of the of the needs of the editing, you know. In this case, I tried. I learned to take shots that were primarily visual rather than primarily subject. Now, as most filmmakers, to one degree or another, are journalists. You know, they're reporting on something. You know, you know, even even if it's a uh, an avant-garde, it could be a, a. It's a little bit of a reporting. On something, so I learned that if I took shots where the where the mind primarily saw the shot as an object which had a name, that those didn't work well with the polyvalent editing. But the shots which uh, yeah, they were a subject matter, but the visual their abstract visual nature was their strongest component. And I found if if, if you took shots with their abstract visual nature was their strongest component. Then you could cut from one shot to another based on visual visual resonances between the way two shots work together, not because of their subject matter, but because of the way they looked. And so that that kind of thing helped me shoot more and more in a way for the polyvalence to work. With a film not representing a place or a subject, but where the actual the film itself was the place in the subject, so that you would be one place in another, and it was very delicate because it's a very delicate thing to do because you still have to be true to its poetic nature. <laughs> it's a very complicated thing, but you still have to be very sensitive to the atmosphere or the mood of a film, and whether a certain material works in the mood of that film. Just like a dream has an underlying mood. You might have a, an anxiety dream or a happy dream, whatever, but it's always resting on a mood, usually a dream. You know, so the films sort of rest on a mood. 
Are you the kind of filmmaker that still gets excited when film comes back from from the lab? Are you having it projected, you know, within the hour, or are you quite comfortable to sort of let let work sit and and take your time to to see what it actually looks like? No, I go home in an ambulance straight to my. No, I, I love. Ever since when I was a kid, I started making films when I was about ten or eleven. At that time. There's only one place in America that you could send your film for for your home movies. It was in Rochester, New York, Eastman Kodak. And it took a month. Can you believe that? Often a month to get your footage back, your dailies. <laughs> you know. And so I remember as a kid, when all of a sudden one of those mail, one of those rolls of film would come through your door mailbox back from Rochester after weeks and you couldn't wait to see it. And, and it's the same now. Now it takes me, because the labs are, you know, film is becoming a little bit esoteric. There's no more labs in San Francisco, for instance. And, and the best lab that I'm using that is very good for my kind of filmmaking is a lab in, in Maryland, which is on the East Coast near Washington, D.C. And so I have to send the film all the way 3,000 miles across the country, get it processed, and then ship back. And sometimes, if I send it overnight, they'll process it, and they get it in the morning, they'll process it and print it that same day and send it back. So sometimes I've actually sent it off Monday morning and gotten it back Wednesday. But no, no, when the footage, there's nothing I'm looking forward to. I know Friday I'm getting the footage back and make sure I don't have an appointment or a date. And, uh, it, you know, it's, it's very, it's very ex- exciting. I go, just like a kid, I go, I have an apartment that has two levels and I go downstairs where my editing room is and I pull the shades down and then, and watch it. And I, and it's very important. The first screening, I find that, um, very, very important to be very mindful, uh, on the first time you see the footage. Because um, the first time you see it, you don't lie to yourself. You know, mm-hmm. if, something, okay. if, if something works, you become completely absorbed in the screen. You're not, conv- you're not saying to yourself, oh, this is kind of good, or this is good. You're not saying that. When you're saying this is good or that's kind of good, it's already not good. It's only seeing it directly the first time when all of a sudden you forget yourself and and you become the screen you know the, 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 you know you, you become the screen there's a kind of union there kind of because I found over the years so many times I, I almost finished a film I'll go back and look at all the outtakes make sure I didn't leave something out that would have been good 90% of the time I put back a shot you know because when you look at the outtakes, then one sticks out in the context of the outtakes. But maybe when you put it back in the film, it's not good enough for the film. And you realize why it was an outtake. Other times, you sort of convince yourself, well, it was okay to you know, I was looking at the outtakes. It was, it seemed kind of more interesting than the rest. But I found again and again that years later, when any of those shots come on that I took out of the outtakes and put back in the film, Years later, when that shot comes on, it looks dull to me, or it doesn't shine. It doesn't have the life or exuberance of the material I originally chose. 
So I'm very suspicious now of, of, of any shot which for some reason I put aside, you know, that there was something not quite right about it. Sometimes they're 99% right, you know, but just as that 1% where your mind is going, oh, this one's really good. I wish that, that little thing weren't on the right side, you know, you know, that kind of thing. And then you realize, no, that little right, that little thing on the right side really is there. And it really is distracting, you know. So the editing process involves a lot of honesty. Because you've gone out and shot something, you already have a certain narcissistic, you know, sense that, oh, this is something I shot. You're proud of it. It looks good. You know, this is mine. It looks good. I did it. You know, that kind of thing. But you have to be very, you have to be very careful. Uh, very careful and be very honest. If you if you've convinced yourself it's working, it isn't working, you know. And uh, there's all sorts of reasons you could tell yourself why it's working, but I'm just now I'm primarily aware of the voice which is trying to convince me. And I go, ah, no, no, thank you. <laughs> I take it then though the the projector that you have at home um, to, to 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 view on is. Um, just set at eighteen frames per second as as standard. Yes, yeah, so well, it has two it has two choices, you know, mm-hmm. sound and and with and eighteen frames, you know, mm-hmm. and and it's also some some projectors that go to eighteen frames don't have a good shutter and there's a lot of strobing, you know, mm-hmm. but the, I have a, just a certain old an old model Bell and Howell. Projector, which the kind that I was used when I was in high school, <laughs> which is almost a century ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, I, I did want to ask you about the way that you prefer your films to be presented, and that there was a really nice quote I read or heard from you saying that with your work projected eighteen frames a second, you are slowly. Uh, massaged into a more direct experience of being alive and seeing. So, can, can you maybe little talk a little bit about about the, the the theory and why precisely eighteen frames per second rather than sixteen or twenty four? Yeah. yeah. Well, a number of things. First of all, film was moved up to the speed of twenty four frames a second. Of course, the film companies were very happy about this because it meant you had to shoot more film. You know, so they, they were thrilled. But that was primarily for the uh, reproduction of sound, for the optical soundtrack to work on film and had to go at least 24 frames a second. So then that became the standard speed of film for the purpose of uh, sound, right? But since I'm making silent films, I had the freedom of the silent filmmakers of the 1920s or the 19-teens. What I found, first of all, is, this will sound funny, but when you're used to working with or showing your films with a projector in a room, a projector is much more friendly sounding at 18 frames a second. It's more like a cat purring, you you know, very content where the 24 frames is more like rawr, the claw that you can feel the claw, rawr, 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 you know, and so that it's more pleasant when you're looking at movies in an apartment or say in a room to, to it's much more pleasant to the, to the ear that they're going at silent speed than at, at uh, 
sound speed. So that became that was one of the things. The other thing is because the way I was articulating, a lot of times I was shooting single frames and doing things with little frame clusters and so forth. And the 18 frames a second allowed you to see more just because it was going a little slower. And then eventually I realized that the 18 frames was more sympathetic. It was more tender. It was closer to the threshold of the solidity in the sense that film is an illusion, you know, of stills with a, with your the after image of your eye, you know, uh, filling in the blank between each still, you know, giving the illusion of movement, and that whole process became more an, an angel-like, you know, when it's slower, you know, everything became a little more gossamer in a way, you know, and now I be now I'm just so used to it, you know, and, and it's it's completely crippled my career because. There's so few places now that can show 18 frames in a professional way. But I'm doing, you know, as a, there's a famous filmmaker from San Francisco who died a number of years ago named George Kuchar. I don't know if you ever heard of the Kuchar brothers. And as George said to me once, you know, we're, we're paying for our own films. We might as well enjoy them. You know, you know since, since it's our own money, Reminds well, why, why, why do something that society wants? You know, you can do what you want, and then if it, you know, if it's interesting, society will come toward that rather than trying to please society. Into the Moth Light. Into the Moth Light podcast. This podcast is called Into the Moth Light. And it's in reference oh. to the Stan Brackage film, yes. Mothlight, obviously. Yes. And um, I attended an event and we, we, you spoke about Brackage and, and you said, um, and I think this was your quote, um, I went to pick up my Bolex and the world felt different after, after his death. So yes. what, what was your relationship with, with Stan Brackage and, and his work? Well, when I was about 18... He, he was already a god, <laughs> you know, in, in, in the American avant-garde, you know. Um, and I, was a, I first saw his films uh, when, he, when I was 18. Uh, he came to New York, and there were some midnight screenings, and he premiered uh, part one of Dog Star, Dog Star Man, you know. He hadn't made three, two, three, and four yet. And showed some other films, you know. He had already made Anticipation of the Night. I think he was 24 when he made Anticipation of the Night, which is one of, to me, one of the great revolutionary movies. I mean, I can think of few films, maybe, maybe a little. Uh, of course, I'm a fan of, of uh, Roberto Rossellini. Maybe Rossellini's Voyage to Italy, which is kind of revolutionary film. Uh, this in its own genre of experimental. Uh, one person, you know, filmmaking uh, was uh, completely revolutionary. You know, the idea that the camera, as they say, the camera is the protagonist. The camera is the storyteller, you know. Um, and um, so I would say, you know, it was overwhelming. This first screening I went to, the questions that were asked were so sophisticated. And I, I was so impressed. It was over my head. And I love that it was over my head, you know, and asked questions and so forth. 
And um, so that was my first relationship with him. And then I always kept him in my mind as a North Star, so to speak, as someone who always represented the values of art, you know, and, and so forth. Not that I liked everything or understood every film the first time, you know, but I, the integrity was always there. You know, he, he never let down his guard. He never, you know, it was always challenging. And so he, he uh, so, and so he was, what would you call it, like an older brother? And I, then I showed him my early films. He was quite critical, you know. You know, he, he wasn't very, like a nice person that way. You know, he said, why did you use sound? I said, well, I wanted the film to be more powerful. He said, well, you should go to Hollywood, you know. <laughs> you know, this is, this is about 19 or 20, you know. And so, um, I, and then I corresponded with him and visited him. So throughout my life, you know, he was like someone, you must have had a hero of some sort from childhood, some, some, a, a writer or whatever or something. So when he died, it, it, the world felt different. It's like a, the universe felt different. The, the solar system felt different. The, my local solar system, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, yeah. No, that, that's, that's, that's nice to hear. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, he, he, he was a God, he, he, he is a God and, Every filmmaker should be aware of him and his work. So I wanted to ask you just finally, there's been quite a lot of chat about your work, 17 Reasons Why, presented digitally at, at MoMA this year. And um, you, you said that museum is, is somewhere that you used to visit as a, as a child, as a five-year-old. Your, your parents yeah. would take you. Having the work shown at MoMA, you said it sort of completed your life. You know, it had gone full circle. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but but you, you must have more work that you want to do. I don't get a sense of you slowing down at all. So that that might have been one circle that's completed, but I imagine there's lots of other circles of life still yeah. to come from you. Yeah, well, in that case, what I meant was, and this is kind of charming, when I was a, a child, as you mentioned, uh, every Saturday we I went with my parents to, into New York and we went to the Museum of Modern Art. And I and they they had children's matinee then, and they would show you know Chaplin and Keaton, and uh, you know various silent films, and then we'd walk around the museum and I'd look at the paintings and my father would help me look at them and so forth, and uh, so what happened was a year or two ago, uh, I got invited to lunch at MoMA. I didn't know why. I got I'm going uh oh what's this going to be. What do they want? How am I going to get screwed? <laughs> Not really, you know. And and actually what it was is they wanted to show uh, 17, they had come upon 17 Reasons Why, which is made, I, I don't think your, if your audience would understand this easily, but the, it was made with a regular eight film. Regular eight film was just 16 millimeter with twice as many perforations. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, the, and the way it worked is just like an audio cassette, if your audience even remembers audio cassettes. I'm sure they will. Uh -huh. yeah. you, go, you, you, would, you would shoot down one side of the film and then turn it over, take it off the take-up reel, put it and feed it back, and then come back down the other side of the film. Just like an audio cassette. You would record down one half, turn it over, and come back down the other half. 
And so you can shoot it that way with an eight millimeter camera. But if you ask the laboratory not to cut the film in half, so it becomes eight millimeter, it comes back as 16 millimeter, but with twice as many holes, you can project it with a 16 millimeter projector. And then you see four boxes at the same time. You actually see four frames. So this is a, a novelty act that a lot of people in experimental film tried at one point or another. Stan has some beautiful sequences in his film, um, 23rd Psalm Branch with a double, with a double eight. And, uh, so I made this whole film with a double eight. At, at, at any rate, they wanted to put it, I never allowed my films to be digitized because the digitization in a way is a sterilization of the cinematic image. I mean, digital looks nice when it's shot digitally, but when it's film turned to digital and the concerns are filmic, it's a kind of a perverse translation. It, it doesn't work. But anyway, they convinced me they had a way of doing it in a great way and that they also, it was difficult to show digital work at other than 24 frames a second because of the way it's designed. Like Blu-ray can only play 20, it can't play silent speed. Yeah, and they have ways of faking it by double printing certain images. When they were showing me where they were going to do the installation, it was in a place in the museum where you could see the old staircase from the 1940s and 1950s, you know, because the museum has been redone about five times. It keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger. But there was this old thing like a time capsule. And I looked and I said, oh, and I remember being on that stairway as a five-year-old. And now I was being invited to actually show in the museum. So in that sense, it was a full circle. But in terms of the big circles of my own work, I always think I'm through. I always think... And my friends know it. They're so tired of me. I'm like a broken record. You know, this time I really mean it. I think there's nothing left in me. I've squeezed everything out. I think I should stop. So that happened again. And so I was just hanging out in the park near the ocean where there are these lovely lakes. It was windy. And it was springtime. And it was so full of energy. I just started to shoot. And I just got the footage back yesterday. And I see, oh, there's a little film here. I don't know, you know, they keep coming, but they come, they come out of circumstance. Into the Mothlight podcast is sponsored by the Film and Video Poetry Society. Into the Mothlight. Into the Moth Light. Into the Moth Light Podcast.